everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Casey Peterson. Casey works at Sandia Labs and he was putting out a few videos about some of the critical race theory training and anti-racism training that they were having there. And also that he was, he was also tweeted out by Chris Ruffio, who's a journalist who's doing a lot of work on critical race theory and anti-racism in the federal government right now. Hey Casey, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so like I said, I saw your first video, or I don't know if it was your first video, the first time I saw your video was when Chris tweeted it out. Like, I, I think what Chris is doing is amazing, and, but like, first of all, thanks a lot for putting that stuff out there because I think more people need to start doing that. So um, if you want to go into a bit about what you were doing at Sandia Labs, kind of who they were and what this training was, and then we can just kind of go from there. Sure. Um, Sandia National Laboratory is one of 17 national laboratories. Uh, we are a federally funded research and development center or a FFRDC for the United States. And we are the largest of the 17 national laboratories um, having uh, 13 or 16,000 employees and contractors uh, on staff at Sandia. Out of all the national laboratories, I think there's nearly um, 60,000 full-time employees for all national laboratories and 20,000 of those uh, employees are scientists and engineers across all national laboratories. And so I am a, I've been a research and development electrical engineer for Sandia National Laboratories for five years now. And Sandia is uh, absolutely critical to national security in the United States and takes on some of the most uh, difficult, challenging and sensitive problems that there are for our national security. So uh, absolutely great organization to work to, to work for. I agree. Um, yeah, okay, like, so I, I mean, I don't bear your background with the military, so we have that a bit in common because I used to do comms for the military myself. So it's always civilian though, I always point that out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like I saw your video and you were talking about the critical race theory that was coming in. So if you want to go through a bit of that, because Again, I speak to my friends. I try to point it out because I've been reading this stuff for the last year and a half, almost two years. Yeah. And it's just awful. So if you want to show what it's like in practice, because I tell them the theory and they're like, well, it can't be that bad. It's like, so if you can explain how it's, how it's put out in the live, then, you know, maybe they might get an so idea. I think, yeah. I think even a lot of the people that were uh, at the laboratories, um, a lot of people that would share my mindset, I would say, we're just kind of keeping their heads down. Damon, know it, it was this bad at the, at the laboratory and just trying to ignore things. And uh, especially for, you know, the average citizen, people are just trying to keep their head down. Uh, critical race theory, if people are unaware what that is, it is kind of at the uh, core. Um, I guess I'll use uh, a lot of times I'll use critical race theory interchangeably here because we had a lot of intersectionality going on as well. Just essentially, uh, think breaking things down to race and gender and things like that in the workplace. So critical race theory goes hand in hand with um, intersectionality oftentimes. So essentially it is looking at the entire world through the rate, through the lens of race and gender. And that's where all these ideas of systemic racism prevalent through all Western society is coming from. And that um, we, like America is racist down to its core, founded on racism and is evil to its core. And we need to tear down the institutions that have made um, America and Western civilization so successful. So it's kind of a very uh, destructive and divisive ideology and always breaks everything down, every interaction and um, every statistic down to the very basics of your race and your gender and what character and even your sexuality is obviously tied into that with this movement. But critical race theory is particularly focused on the race factor. Yeah. So the, 
when you mentioned the intersectionality, like I use the analogy and, you know, okay, I know it's not a religion. I know it's not, but it like, you know, I come out of a, you know, like my, I come out of an Islamic background, um, you know, so like uh, I'm an ex-Muslim, but I know the whole apostate thing. I know the whole, you know, the, the apologists and all that. And I see the same kind of arguments. And the way I look at intersectionality is if you equate it to like Christianity. So when you have Christianity, so that's intersectionality, but then Roman Catholicism is critical race theory. Uh, you know, orthodoxy is like queer theory. You know, Pro Protestantism could be gender theory. Like each of those different theories under intersectionality because they took on that intersectional lens for everything. And I think that was, you know, partially due to when Kimberly Crenshaw came out with it. She said, you know, like she started off in critical race theory and she put out her work on intersectionality and she merged the two together. And that's the kind of the way I look at them. I don't know if that makes sense to you or... Yeah, and then I think a lot of the uh, a lot of people um, relate it to religion because after you start talking and digging into like the books or talking to people that believe in critical race theory, you find very quickly that a lot of the uh, logic or if you would call it the reasoning behind their their theories and things like that are backed by the same things you would find in a lot of religions. I come from a, a religious background myself, and so you find yourself in these arguments with somebody who passionately vehemently believes in uh, critical race theory or this intersectionality and you start you can't help but quickly relate it to religion or even conspiracy theorists because you will show them uh data and even even hard hard facts and data and show them the studies and and they will look you in the face and say that that it is uh that it is even conspiratorial that of course white supremacists are making up these fake studies and thing and things of that nature so I would say that that's not an unfair comparison. Additionally, I would say there is a lot of uh, groupthink in the ideas of the taking of individual responsibility uh, in this critical race theory. Uh, the, another one of the reasons it's so bad is because it's boiling everyone down to their own separate groups. And it really, um, it, it kind of, makes individuality and all the good traits that may, may make uh, a person successful in it uh, villainizes those types of traits. And so it's a very divisive ideology that uh, in the end, I think if, if people start digging into it, if you don't, if you don't think it's a big deal, I recommend people go out and uh, pick up the uh, possibly pick up the book white fragility. And that is, uh, I mean, it is oh, <laughs> absolutely it's it's awful, but at the same time, you you really do need to understand what you're up against and how deep it runs. And uh, the white fragility is just the popular one today. There are a lot of other books in this uh, in this ideology, but white fragility is is a really good starting point because it just shows you the type of mentality that's behind this. And the uh, the uh, white woman who writes this book, Robin DiAngelo. It's very interesting character because she starts out by telling you um, that she is racist and you kind of understand her claiming that she's racist is like, okay, you're just saying everyone's racist. But as you read more through this book, you realize you say, holy crap, this woman is really racist. Like nobody thinks like this. Right? Nobody looks at the world like this. Nobody has interactions with, you know, African-Americans or other races like this. So she is truly racist. I believe her after reading the book, I, I was just blown away. Like you are a terrible person. Why would you think about people in that way in every exactly. interaction? But that's, <laughs> so. but that's what I try to tell people. It's forcing you to think about everything through that racial lens. So if you don't still mind going through just a bit of some of the stuff they said, like, you know, what were they, you know, like, talk about whiteness or talk about white supremacy and like they want to dismantle the system. But like, if you want to just go through like what they're saying that system is. 
Sure. And let's go back a little bit. I guess uh, people watching this podcast may not realize exactly why I'm even here on the podcast. So mm. essentially what had happened, I work at this uh, national laboratory of 16,000 employees and I had been pushing back and forth with um, all of our leadership and HR, government relations and ethics and going back and forth with all of them for, for a couple months almost. And eventually just received the answer that I'm going to go back to work, keep my opinions to myself and uh, that, that they are going to keep teaching what they're teaching. And yes, we may have put some stuff out we shouldn't have and we're going to review that. So they were going to review these things. And so in the end, I decided that that was completely unacceptable. This needed to get out of our national laboratories because it was very divisive. It was causing people to, uh, it was dividing teams. It was not strengthening laboratories and it was making people want to leave and find another place to work. And so I went ahead and I had already put together most of a presentation that I had been pitching that I was saying, I'm going to teach a class that's correcting some of the misinformation and showing all sides of this debate or another side of this debate better yet. And I just went ahead and rolled that class into a video and I put this video together about an hour long video. And then I mass emailed it out on August 25th to all 16,000 employees and contractors. And I emailed it out to everybody within an hour. They had blocked all the links um, going externally to, to it, everybody trying to email it out to their own private emails at home that got blocked as well. And then I think two to three, two to three hours after I put it out, they had scrubbed it from the entire system, which only caused more people to go look for, look for the video and find out what was in it. So that was a, a added bonus there. And then uh, about an hour after I dropped the video, they had blocked me from all internal resources and I got put into an ethics review, which I, I'm still in the midst of an ethics review, but I am back to work at this point. I am back working at the laboratory on a uncleared basis until the investigation is completed, hopefully in a couple weeks. So that is why I'm even sitting down here with you right now for all those who want to be caught up in this battle. Yeah, I'll put the links to that and your interviews with uh, Benjamin Boyce and Carrie Smith. Um, I'll put them in the description so people can get more of a background. Yeah, and as a backdrop to this, we had uh, yesterday, uh, Donald Trump came out with a memorandum from his administration saying that uh, critical race theory and anything teaching about white privilege and America's racist to its core and evil and things of that nature, and he kind of loosely defined it right now, but said that you, you need to immediately stop teaching that in federal facilities. And in addition to that, uh, he had a comment in there about contractors, so I'm unsure exactly how it's going to be implemented. There's more details to follow. This was just his preliminary one-page um, uh, guidance on it, and hopefully that, that ripples out to the, to the effect that anybody working with national laboratories or working with federal agencies will have to justify a absolute necessity if they teach this garbage in their, in their private companies if they want to work with the federal, federal government. Hopefully that is the case, but we're unsure of the details and we're unsure of what this is going to actually solve. You could obviously see this being implemented in a way that leaves a lot of wiggle room and people just switching their verbiage and teaching the same exact thing again. So we really have to keep an eye on this to ensure that it's uh, out of the federal facilities and national laboratories from here moving forward. Yeah, that's one, like, okay, I'm glad he did it, even though I'm in Canada, like, I'd like to see that here as well, but some of his wording, I, I had the same kind of thinking, like, okay, all they have to do is, you know, change it from critical race theory to something else, oh, we're just going to teach anti-racism, and, you know, they don't even mention critical race theory, so hopefully it's not And like it that. raises awareness to it. Yeah. So if you're raising awareness to it, what happens is if it's in the federal facilities and you raised awareness to the fact that this, uh, how poisonous this ideology is, ideology is 
and then private sector is trying to put this inside of their own workforce, it kind of looks really bad on a, on a federal workforce. If, if all of the federal government of the United States is saying like, no, this is extreme, you can't be pushing these extreme divisive views, and then they're doing it in private companies, it does give uh, you ammunition as an employee of private companies, a little more pressure on them to say like, look, this is unacceptable. And then as we know, uh, politics is just uh, downstream from culture. So this should have a, a significant, if, if, it stays in place long term, we should have a significant shift in the culture, which downstream politics will will follow. And hopefully that that actually bleeds over into um, other countries as well. Because I know, uh, like it or hate it, I guess the United States does kind of set the tempo sometimes on these debates, as we see with the riots, just with George Floyd and things like that around the world. Okay, just okay, just to put some in some perspective. The only statistics I can find from Stats Canada is from 2000 to 2017. 452 people were killed by police officers in that 17 year period. So immediately after George Floyd, our woke prime minister gets on, talks about, you know, unchecked police violence in Canada. I'm like, okay, I'm not saying 450 people is, you know, it's great or whatever, but in 17 years, 450 people is not unchecked violence. <laughs> But, but he's the prime minister. He probably did that with a lot of facts and data to back up his claims, right? When he, when he stood up in front of the entire country, right? Okay, no. He had a lot of facts and data with him? No, he didn't. He had nothing. It was oh, just, imagine it was, that. It was all about privilege and everything. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. But, okay, you're an engineer. You're working in a science lab. So I'm assuming there's a lot of other scientists and engineers and, you know, people who work in STEM. So when you get a training that's telling you that objectivity is whiteness and that's white supremacy, what do you say? Like, how do you deal with that? Like, I work in IT, you know, I'm brown. I hear that. I'm like, what do you mean that that's, that's, that's only for white people? Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, like, you use Arabic numerals that came from India. Like, I think I have some claim to this. <laughs> So I think the uh, if people go and view that video that I made, you you can tell I got a lot of, I got complaints from a lot of people saying it's too long, it's you're going too fast, it's too dense with information. I was making that for engineers and scientists and PhDs, so like not necessarily the general public was not my target audience, and it is one of the few places where my appeal to facts and logic on this debate are actually heated and people actually care to dig into these studies. Maybe not all of them, maybe not as many as I would like, but much more receptive with the type of arguments I was, I was pitching in this video than you may have in a normal workplace, which was, uh, I guess, emphasized to me when I was sitting down meeting with the senior manager of HR, telling her about all of my um, studies and data and facts that they had missed that were misleading and then the, the different things I had disputing their facts and, and trying to show them all, all these different data. And she said, it is not our job to fact check these materials for accuracy. And then she told me that you can find a study that could prove anything you want, not understanding that we have conflicting studies all the time in the academic and scientific and engineering world. And we, we that's how we debate is through studies and facts and data. So yeah, it's, it's just, not taken with the same seriousness facts and data are not looked at this uh, arguing from that standpoint you are not necessarily going to be successful in your place of work let me just give that disclaimer up front so just because it was it, it was more successful in my place of work i think you have to sometimes take a different approach according to your audience and many other people appeal to um morality 
arguments uh, and filling arguments and then uh, emphasizing results. And so that's something that I kind of stress for a lot of other people to make sure they're emphasizing the results that is that are happening by pushing these narratives that they, they expect a certain outcome. They, they have the best of intentions, but the results with critical race theory, intersectionality and this type of divisive rhetoric do not match with the intentions. And that's what you have to continue to bring it back to and show that it's hurting minority communities and it's hurting the very people that you are espousing to help the most. It's hurting them the most. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I don't know where to begin when they say that science and logic and reason is a white way of knowing. No, but, <laughs> no, but, okay. That's there. Okay. There's a book you mentioned white fragility. There's another book called acting white. Um, and the prologue of the book the guy talks about how Obama talked white and dressed white and acted white, and that's bad. And this thing about science not being for, you know, brown and black people. To me, that reminds me of like the 70s and the 60s when you'd hear stuff like, oh, they're getting uppity. You know, they're like, you no, know, but I mean, that, that's exactly what yeah. it is, right? It's like, yeah. Jesus Christ, you're so racist. And, and that, no, like that. <laughs> It's extremely racist. And what happens is the, the whole verbiage used by this movement, they, they don't even understand it themselves because it is so belittling and it is so demeaning to sit here and, and, and pitch the soft bigotry of low expectations to minority groups thinking that they couldn't possibly achieve what their, what their white counterparts have achieved or what somebody across the, because of their skin color, something so so ridiculous to say the skin color is that important and for them to sit here and talk talk to them as if they they are children that need help and that we need to prop them up and prop their voices up and constantly help them without us they couldn't possibly succeed it's it's ironic that they can't see how racist the the verbiage used there and, and, the, and the speech that they continue to push it's it's unfortunate but i think that's what you just have to continue highlighting because it's it's a battle you can win every day of the week if you just continue to point out that you are not having the in, intended results. Your, your intentions are not matching your results. No, not at all. And I mean, like you said, you can go in with that idea that, okay, you know, yes, racism is bad. We need to stop it. But this whole thing of it's either you're racist or you're anti-racist. I mean, it's no, you can just not be racist. I mean, if a majority well, of people stop doing that. Everybody, <laughs> like I, Everybody in the end of, at the end of the day considers themselves anti-racist. I am certainly not pro-racist. And if I see racist actions, I call them out. Everybody is anti-racist. But the, the ironic thing is all they do is they call it anti-racism. And then you dig into it and you find out, wow, this is pretty racist. This is pretty divisive. Just because you're calling it anti-racism, which I think is great. Like anti-racism without the ideology they have behind it. If you just talk about being against racism, yes, everybody I think is against racism or most most of, a, of the country and the world's against racism. It's the fact that they say it's anti-racism and they're extremely racist, just like your anti-fascists are so ironically fascist. So it's just, uh, just just because you attach the name to it doesn't actually mean that you're anti-racist. Yeah, no, that's just like the, the wording, everything it's, you know, okay, Canada, we have a ministry of, they changed the ministry of multiculturalism to the ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. And one of the mandates of that ministry is to set up an anti-racism secretariat for the government. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's like, well, how can you be against diversity and inclusion? It's like, well, you know, they, they don't mean that. 
Well, I, I hear some horror stories out of Canada every now and then. I, I get the stories of uh, the the policing of hate speech and things like that, and things that just just make me uh, shudder because that would be absolutely terrible if that trickled over here to the United States. And I feel bad for you guys sometimes with the the type of oppression that goes on, whether it be free speech or other freedoms that you guys have. Well, the speech stuff here, it's it's hit and miss. Like, okay, I hate the laws and I don't want them there, but if we have them. Let's apply them equally across the board. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have a comedian, he's doing a stand-up act and he made fun of a disabled person. Whether you like that or not, okay, that's stand-up comedian, he's doing comedy. He got slapped with a $50,000 fine. Okay, there's a Catholic priest who up from the pulpit said, and this was in Quebec, he said, I, uh, you know, I I won't marry gay people. I, you know, against some, you know, they just want to like a fundamentalist Catholic tirade against homosexual sure. marriage like whatever but he's on the pulpit he got a six-month suspended sentence and he's never allowed to speak in public again there's been imams and there's Jeez. like a video of this have come out the imams are saying straight out like kill the gays kill the jews you know it's all in arabic so not a lot of people understand it oh well we're going to look into this it's like okay if you're going to give that to that preacher <laughs> you know, if you're going to give it to that priest that imam has to get the same sentence like i don't want the laws but you know, yeah. if you have them, apply them equally across the board. That's where we get a lot of problems here is it's people see it. It's like, wait a minute, uh, you're doing that. You're not doing the other thing. I mean, the one, there was another one. There was a, a First Nations woman in Calgary, I believe, or Edmonton. She was holding up a sign that said, kill white people. And we have yeah. hate, hate speech laws and hate crime laws. And, you know, that goes against them. But because she was, you know, First Nations, you're oppressed she was let go well change white to black and you know the result obviously yeah exactly so that's that's it Um, so i i see a little bit of that um i guess there's been been um some worrying trends here in the states uh, especially the past few months about some of the laws being uh, applied unevenly but uh, people are fighting back i think people are finally waking up to the fact that they can't passively passively enjoy their freedoms anymore and they need to make sure that they're they're being active um, you have a lot more traditional, uh, traditionally minded people that are actually speaking out and standing up and showing up to protests and things, which, you know, traditionally that, that, that group in the United States has not been very vocal and very unwilling to go to protests, unwilling to call people and things like that. So I think uh, without getting too political, we're seeing a little bit of that over here and hopefully, hopefully it's short lived. Yeah, there's I mean, I was speaking to a group of parents a couple of days ago. And these were from uh, New York City, Virginia, California. Um, yeah. And they were talking about this in schools and what they're doing to fight back. I mean, I believe in high schools in some parts of the United States, it was as early as 2010, they were teaching intersectionality. Like it was in the, in the curriculum. I mean, for the yeah. last couple of years, it's been in K through 12 in large number, you know, large parts of the U.S. And, okay, What's happening at your work is awful. It shouldn't happen at, you know, especially government and stuff. You, you, federal funding should not be pushing dogma. But I'm looking at little kids and, like, I think back to the gangs in the 80s and then, like, the, the white supremacists, you know, like, kind of a reaction to it in the early 90s. It's like, okay, they pick out, they go after kids who are lonely. They go after kids who feel oppressed. They go after kids who feel marginalized. You teach yeah. this to kids, that's what you're going to get. Like, my friend talked about going Halloween shopping with his son. And one of the other dads was picking up a costume for his kid. Like, I don't know what it was exactly. And the kid was about eight years old and said, I can't wear that. That's offensive. 
An eight-year-old should not be thinking like that. <laughs> like, no. It's... Yeah. Um, so I think uh, another thing is that this is uh, the first thing that was said after this order was sent out by the administration over here. Um, the first things that was said on, on the same side of the argument was like, yeah, that's great. Now we need to get it out of the schools. And obviously it's, it's through all of our private institutions and private institutions and things like that. But the schools is where you, if you, if you don't get it out of the schools now, we might as well give up because in 10 to 20 years, it is going to be right back in the government again. And it's going to be back with a vengeance. So yes, there is a lot more to do here. And additionally, this was an order by the executive branch. So unless this goes to legislation in the United States, uh, it will be repealed the minute that there is a change in the change in leadership in the United States, somebody who agrees with this, it'll be pushed right back in. So yes, this is a big victory and a big moment in the culture war, but we also need to realize that there's still more ahead of us and everybody that's going to sit back on their, uh, sit back and relax from here forward. Uh, you're not going to like the results 10, 20 years from now, because it will be back if you are, if you are not d diligent. Oh, totally. I mean, okay. The, I was, I was starting university when the first PC craze, like the late eighties was coming around and the same thing. Oh, well it's gone. You don't have to worry about it. I'm like, yeah, okay. Guess what? 15 years later, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, no, but it, that's just it. Like, I wanted out of education. You know, study at university. I don't care. Do whatever you want, you know, but you study a lot of stuff in university that you don't apply it to policy. Like, you know, you want to have like weird mental games and like mental masturbation in university and philosophy class, go right ahead. But it, it shouldn't be making policy or anything like that. Like, it's. It, well, and it's very one-sided too, because you try to push certain other views at uh, university right now uh, high, and higher education in the United States right now. And you have, a, you have a lot of pushback from one side. Uh, if you, if you try to voice views, it, it opposing viewpoints that would espouse traditional values. And if you don't buy into this ideology of critical race theory and intersectionality, and if somebody comes to speak at the university, that's controversial and doesn't agree with what the university is pushing, then they are protested and pushed out and people try to stay quiet and keep their head down and just get their degrees at university. But if you buy into the ideology and you're fully on their side, then they are speaking the loudest and just indoctrinating, indoctrinating the next generation. So I definitely agree that these things, I, I am for uh, very much an advocate of free speech in all settings. But again, you say, make sure we're applying it equally. Make sure that we are ensuring that the people that are brave enough to speak out with opposing viewpoints are protected and that they can't, they can't be, uh, they can't be retaliated against, which is what, what is happening um, in the culture wars over, over here right, and have been happening for a very long time. And that's why we see when this comes out in our companies and our places of business and in, in our elementary schools and all these other places, it started in universities. It started with training these HR individuals. It started with these, um, these universities. And then when the mandate came down under Barack Obama for diversity and inclusion, many companies took that to the extreme. So I think that when they saw their moment, this has been in the works for a very long time. So they, they, they seized on that moment when uh, this unfortunate event happened with George Floyd. Yeah. Okay. I mean the, the George Floyd thing, I think they seized the moment before. The, like if you follow it, like I just, like I said, I was reading a lot of it and I followed the kind of the scholarship. So the first people, once intersectionality came out and they were teaching all this stuff through the intersectional lens. So it was the early nineties. 
So the first people with masters and maybe doctors were coming out near the end of the nineties and the early two thousands. So those people were, you know, you come in as interns, you come in as junior level management. And then as more and more people are graduating, they're going back into the administrations of universities. Uh, A couple of people did uh, studies on the media and race and racism and how they use those words and terms. So if you look at, and they started from the 2000s. So you look at the early 2000s, starting around 2008, between 2008 and 2010, it starts growing exponentially. It's pretty flat up until then, but there's bumps for Islam and stuff like that. So after 9-11 with you know, George W. Bush, it, this is just my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory here, right? After George W. Bush, you see it. Uh, patriotism is racism. The United States is racist because of Islamophobia. Obama gets it in 2008. They start pushing, you know, oh, if you are post-Obama, you're racist, blah, 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 blah. They start pushing that. Then you get Ferguson, you get, uh, uh, you know, like, I'm trying to remember all the places. There was like, so, you know, like once Ferguson started, you had BLM, you had like one, one after, you know, a couple after another. And then Trump comes along and obviously they go crazy. Like, you know, you've, you, you had this building in the media from about the late 90s. And it was this stuff. Yeah. And then it's, by the time Obama came around, I think there was enough people who believed this that were making policy. Okay, you work in a, you know you work for a nuclear lab. So if they need someone, they're going to get someone with PhD in you know nuclear physics or something or you know, engineering masters. Oh, we need someone to look after racism. Well, we hire a PhD in critical race theory because it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, even uh, even I was paying attention. Uh, I would consider myself uh, somebody that pays attention, uh, probably an abnormal amount, and. I, even till now, I didn't have a name for critical race theory. Uh, even recently, I learned what the actual name was of, of this ideology. I, I'd heard of intersectionality and all these other movements that, that are behind it. But putting, putting the name critical race theory to it, uh, I think also helps people to define what they are fighting. And that, that's a very important thing because once you define it and you can give people a route point of what to look for and encouraging people to actually like you know stop avoiding these hr trainings stop avoiding these these ridiculous things going on and burying your head in the sand you need to start attending them and calling them out and being uh showing up in mass to these things and keep and paying attention and actually educating yourself not only on your own beliefs but you need to educate yourself on this uh, critical race theory that has been pushed in here and of course with with these trainings they don't call it a critical race theory degree of course but it is called a diversity and inclusion degree and at the core of that degree will be all the training um, all the training based on critical race theory and i'm sure their reading list for many of their classes uh, at this point in universities will include robin d'angelo and white fragility and me and or white fragility from robin d'angelo me and white supremacy white rage and all these other all these other books that they use as their bibles and so it's kind of a pseudo-scientific practice that is based in based in feelings and and a lot of uh, a lot of guilt so it's very effective what they do uh when you start calling people racist and saying if you don't want to be racist this is what you need to do people pay attention uh, being called racist in the 21st century is a very big accusation i don't think you label somebody with uh, anything much worse than the label of being racist so it is a cudgel that they use very effectively but that's just it. But they throw it around for the most stupid things, like you know, saying the term "master bedroom" is racist. Like, come on, you like, can we just tone it down just a bit? <laughs> like, well, in programming and in hardware and software and stuff, we, we 
we use the terms, uh, and even now we use mm -hmm. the terms for uh, devices. If you have a master device that's communicating with a slave device, and it will say when it wants data sent to it, so like two, two chips, and you'll use master and slave. And now these companies uh, are starting to purge that language from even their internal documentation. And Google has uh, Google and Facebook kind of set the trend for this, I believe, first because they went through their code base and everywhere that they had these words master, they they made a there's a big long list you can look up, but of, of words that they found to be offensive, historically offensive words, they they went back and purged all those things. So it is you know becoming a very uh, politically correct. <laughs> 21st century and everybody is walking on eggshells around yeah. these matters. No, but, and it's, I mean, I, I said it back in like this at the late eighties. Uh, the, the one I use as an example, cause it was the worst was uh, they called it uh, instead of waiter and waitress, because that's gendered. They said you had to use the term waitron. And it, it just, it was just yeah, like that. that and I was like, okay, that's, as soon as I heard that, I said, that's new speak. That is Orwell. That is language without form or function. It, it's got nothing. Yeah. And, th and that's what this stuff is. I mean, it's like you, like, I think that's the thing I hate the most. They, they like, I love to read. And I, since I was a little kid, I've always read, but they're making me hate the language. Like, you know, like a so, word like, I think in this ideology, uh, better yet in these academic circles, uh, they kind of pride themselves, especially if you write a book, the best thing you could do when you write a book is to um, first off, if you take a new term, um, and, and inject it into people's vernacular where they actually adopt it. It's widespread, something like white fragility or even making up a word that hasn't been made up before and it, it gets adopted. That's kind of a badge of honor. And then in addition to that, to take a word that means something and then redefine it. And critical race theory has done that in a major way with many, many terms. And the next book that comes out, guaranteed they'll be pushing new terms in it. But even taking the term racism, saying you're racist or white supremacist, they've redefined that to make it where if you take the critical race theory definition, you cannot, uh, in America, you cannot be racist and you, you cannot be um, black and be racist. You have to be white to be racist. And then additionally, colorblindness, they take it and they try to manipulate it where colorblindness is a very negative thing and, and showing a bit as being ignorant, even saying, you know, that you... Uh, you not recognizing someone's race, obviously you can see people's race, being colorblind uh, in practice, like in reality, walking up and not saying you can't see a black person as being black is stupid, but that's not the point of colorblindness. Colorblindness is about you, you can see somebody's race and recognize it, but you not judging them based on their race, you are judging them on their character, their accomplishments, and what who they are as an individual. And you are not looking at everything through the, through the lens of race and gender, but they've just taken those terms and even saying not racist means you're racist, colorblind means you're racist, and you are not allowed to, you can't even be racist unless you are white. And, and so that is something that they do in this act, these academic circles. But also, and if you argue against the fact, if someone says you're racist, you say, no, I'm not, that in itself is racist. Denial of being racist is, you know, denial of racism is racist. It's a, yes, um, and white fragility, I think it was probably the worst case of this um, because it, they pretty much try to preempt every argument that you have. They say, if you argue this and you know it's coming, no matter what your argument it is or how bad you had it or what it, whatever it is, in the end, it only works to prove them right. So they try to think of any argument you could come up with that might be somewhat logical and then preempt it and say this even proves it further that you're racist and if this makes you upset then you're even more white more fragile and if you're if you had it really really bad and you've never been racist in your life this just means you're even bigger part of the problem yeah it's, it's and i think with uh redefining terms one of the most uh, hilarious things that had happened this was 
maybe a couple years ago, they, they put an ad campaign out on uh, YouTube here in the States, and it was talking about the term masculine. And I don't know if you caught that, but it was this term masculine. It's this little video that got put together, and it says, what does masculine mean to you? And all these guys are talking about what masculine means, and then they're like, do you fit that definition? And they were upset that masculine may, like came with all these traits, and they wanted to change the definition of masculine where essentially feminine could be masculine. And that's what they do. They don't like the term. Changing the term doesn't change anything. And they, but they got destroyed, and that one failed so epically. It just is a very, uh, a very good case study for people. People with this type of group think what they try to do with with the English language. And this is this is what we have to battle well, on a daily basis. Well, now it's math, right? Because two plus two can equal five if you want. <laughs> Yeah, now we're getting into some real niche stuff. I don't. I think most of them still aren't on board with that one. <laughs> okay, but it's. I, I know most of them. I but I. We can laugh at it, and but it's still being taken seriously. Like it was Harvard School of Pharmacology, put out a yes. paper. I mean, okay, you know. I, Harvard can't mean the same thing anymore. You can't. You can't be proud to say I went to Harvard Medical School or law school anymore if that's the kind of stuff they're pushing. Because, yes, if you change the terms and you change, yeah, you're you're talking about base three or you know you're talking like you could you could change all the terms you want, but you're still doing the same function. Like you, know, well, if you round off, I almost think that was put out just as as a uh, gaslighting for you know people people that you know disagreed or you know it, it was. It was so over the top ridiculous because it obviously comes out uh, directly out of, you know, like Orwellian type <laughs> Orwellian type ideology there saying like the two plus two equals five. We're essentially we're going to make you think whatever we want you to think. So I think that one was a little over the top gaslighting on that. But yeah, it is. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be that a lot of our institutions, you know, you look into these studies and this di these different um, research that is carried out and the manner that is carried out in and how how they don't actually adhere to true, uh, the best disciplines in scientific practice. And it, if you have an ideology and there is money and uh, um, uh, political pressure behind it, you are going to get the study and the data to back up whatever you believe, it seems. And it's going that way more and more. Each year you have these, these more and more ridiculous studies coming out and just blatant, blatantly misrepresenting facts and statistics and cherry picking and you know you, statistics 101 class which i'm sure all of these individuals on these studies had to take and all engineers have to take if you actually dig into them you can destroy these studies so quickly but they don't care because they didn't write these studies for the academics a lot of times they know who they wrote who their audience is and their audience is the general public they know when they write something that they plan on getting published by the by the mass millions across media and they don't care if there is academic malpractice in these studies because they know this study will still be getting quoted 20 years from now and they will still be showing up on programs uh, like CNN, MSNBC, and even, uh, even Fox News to sit here and pitch their ridiculous, their ridiculous ideas. So we've almost incentivized bad science and it's kind of an, uh, a serious problem that we have where a lot of these studies aren't aren't repeatable and we aren't adhering to strict scientific practices uh, and we're kind of going away from that and I think there's a lot of good scientists fighting back against that right now and it's something that we need to keep an eye on as a uh, academic and scientific community and keep in check or else uh, 10 20 years from now 
science is going to be looked at like media is looked at today, where when you uh, quote a media source, you're just laughed at. Yeah. So you're like, oh, well, you know, it said in the Washington Post, it's like, well, you know, the Washington Post also said that Baghdadi was an austere Muslim scholar, right? <laughs> but Yeah, um, and, and you have these uh, media sources, like there are certain media sources you cannot quote in a debate. Like I debate a lot of people that are on the left, obviously, you know, sometimes at, at work, we'll have friendly discussions and debates about politics and things. And we know that there are certain sources. If I, if I state a certain source on the right of politics, it will be laughed at. And if I state a certain source on the left, there, there are certain ones that are outside of factual evidence. And like recently, uh, CNN and MSNBC have shifted outside that window where if you, if you're citing facts from them, you know, your Rachel Maddow's types. And then, uh, th there's some other individuals on the right that, that are very bad about, you know, misrepresenting data and stuff. And so it's getting a, a much smaller and smaller window of who you can actually cite in a logical debate with modern, moderate individuals w without being laughed at. Yeah. I, you know what? I, I try, I'm staying away from media. When I say I'm staying away from media, it's not like, okay, I'm going to go to CNN. I'm going to go to, you know, Fox news or whatever. It's okay. I like this journalist. This journalist to me seems trustworthy. So I'll go with that journalist. Um, there's one, she writes for the New York times. Yeah. Uh, her name is uh, Rakmuni Kalamuchi or something like that. She, she did like amazing work on ISIS and stuff like that. She just also did some really good work on Breonna Taylor. I trust her. I don't trust the New York Times. You know, I still, I, I'm worried yeah. about the editorial, but I trust her in her reporting. So if she puts out a piece, I'll give it some credence. So that, that's the way I'm going right now because, you know. No, you and I've seen that, especially recently. I've seen that because even see you talk about CNN or something. Sometimes you want to cite a piece and uh, even, even a video I watched just today, the, uh, the individual said, okay, this individual works for this news organization and went and dug into how like this bias and untrustworthy news organization. And then they had to dig even deeper into the actual journalist saying, I trust this particular journalist, essentially had to justify his source for 30 seconds before he started stating the facts and data. And that's how bad it's gotten with uh, the misrepresentations that are happening uh, in the United States. It, it is on both sides, unfortunately. And it's, yeah. it's hard. You really got to watch yourself when you're consuming media because whether people know it or don't know it, and most of them know it, they are misrepresenting and they have an extreme bias that they're pushing in, in their viewpoints. Yeah. I mean, okay. You've got an advantage of that. And you know, like, like I said, you know, I work in IT, but sort of work, you know, I work with science. Like I'm not a scientist really. Like I work with technology looking at data and stuff like that. But even then, you know, you're an engineer you're not set up to vet studies from sociology or anything like that. You can look at the data and look at their methodology and go, well, that doesn't seem right. Or you go, but the average person doesn't have the time to do all that. Like I was lucky. I, I had some time off and I, you know, I could spend time reading all this stuff, but most people don't. Well, and, and the trouble is even now you will state, uh, so we have .gov sites here that are very reputable. They, they represent the, the data and things like that. And you will cite that in a debate and people will, will tell you that you're a liar, that they can't, they can't trust that or call you a bigot or say that the, the data is even racist for you to cite. And even there is a pressure from inside the government to stop counting or conducting certain studies because the results are seen as being racist. And so there's a pushback against even gathering better, better data in, in certain areas. So as far as uh, being a scientist or an engineer goes, I think if you listen to some, there's a lot of, intelligent individuals um in uh politics pop culture that kind of analyze the things going on analyze studies 
And you will see it is not a massive tool set that they use to analyze these studies. And it's not that hard to pull these studies down and read them yourself. If a friend tells you like their smoking gun or, or the absolute most, um, the greatest evidence they have to prove something, don't feel threatened to dig into a study. And you, if you look at the tools that are used, just realize the logical fallacies and statistical manipulations that are used in these studies and they are repeated again and again and again. So once you build up a very small tool set, you will find that you will end up using the same half dozen tools to debunk bad studies and to point out, um, you know, sometimes people will take one single claim from a study and many, many times you go in and read the study and just by reading it in their own study, they will debunk that person's one sentence because they were just cherry picking out of the study itself. So I guess people should not feel scared to pick up a study, um, just kind of, pigeonhole people down into giving you one piece of information and not, not trying to drown you and saying, here's these 50 things, make them give you their, their hardest hitting piece of evidence and then drill down to that one piece of evidence and, and debunk it on these types of materials. And you only have to do that a few times before those individuals that have been lied to realize they've been lied to. And now all of a sudden they're on a path seeking truth themselves and actually finding better sources for their information. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. Granted, like, the first thing I always do, like, I mean, again, like, I'm not an academic, so you know, I got to school a long time ago. But it's like, okay, you look at the study. So, oh, we studied 20 people. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm not even going to bother going past that. You, you, you know, you're, you had a small sample size, right? Yeah. You know, like, like, it's just, I look at the methodology, what did they do and how they do it. And then, yeah, I mean, there was one I was reading, it was about gun violence. It said, okay, the data shows 10,000, uh, you know, incidents, but we estimate 58,000. Well, if you're saying the data shows 10,000, you know, you're almost six times as much like there's there's something going on here. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe they had a legitimate reason for that, but you have to actually dig into it. Um, in my video, uh, if, if the, you watch nothing else, if your viewers watch nothing else from this or listeners, um, the one, one thing that I would say is I, I went over a section. There are five logical fallacies that I ran into again and again, or essentially five checks that I used for this critical race theory type of um, evidence and their, their studies and things. I would run it through this filter and I kind of just developed this filter out of necessity. I just realized that these same logical fallacies came up again and again. I'm not going to go over all five of them here, but I'm going to highlight the one that is the most heavily used or actually Anecdotal evidence is one of the most heavily used. Obviously, everybody knows anecdotal evidence is garbage, so call it out when you see it. But the one that I saw in studies and data that was the most heavily used was using the wrong benchmark. And the benchmark, people a lot of times for proving systemic racism will say, this is unequal, like unequal outcomes by the population, by percentage of the population benchmark, therefore racism. And that is not the correct benchmark. If you want to say that, um, let's say, for example, we have a higher arrest rate for African-Americans in the United States. And so we say, well, by percentage of population, it should only be this many to equal the same percentage in the white population, therefore racism. You have to look at how many crimes are being committed. You cannot fake a statistic like violent crimes. So when you start comparing it to the correct benchmark of violent crime, all of a sudden, all of those disparities disappear. And you realize, okay, there is no racism in systemic, systemic racism in policing. And for anybody that um, I go over debunking systemic racism in policing a little bit, but Heather McDonald has a video that, that I even cited in my own video that if, if you are having this debate with somebody, I recommend going and listening to Heather McDonald on. She is an expert 
on uh, systemic racism and policing for the United States. And she really drills into the data much deeper than even I do and absolutely debunks every, every last bit of, of people's claims for systemic racism and policing. And we have disparities in, in uh, outcomes for minorities and African-Americans in the United States. And I think you need to address that as well because these disparities, just because you say it wasn't due to racism, that is no excuse to say, we don't need to do anything about it. That is an immoral stance to, to take. Absolutely something needs to be done to correct disparities saying that we, we need to correct them. But if it's not, if you're not identifying the correct cause of these disparities, you are never going to find the proper solution. And the cause is not systemic racism. So drilling down into why, why this disparity exists will get you to the point that you can actually, actually solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying that for a while. Again, like I go back to that late 90s thing, because right? I just look at the timeline of how long it would take someone to go through school, right, to get their master's and all that if they started in the early 90s. Things were getting better. Like, I'm not by no means saying, you know, people are like, oh, well, you, you, what do you mean getting better? You're going to stop us. No, things were getting better. We'd almost gotten to the point where that colorblind ethic was kind of like, the norm for everyone. Okay. Yes. You had stupid things come up after the late nineties, like stop, you know, you know, stop and frisk and like that kind of stuff. That thing in Arizona where they can strop anyone who's Brown to check their ID to see if they're legal. Okay. Those things yes. are racist and you, you can call that out as racism. And I, I have no problem with that. And so this is one thing that bothers me. Just, I'm a, sorry, I'm gonna pause you for just a second because the stop and frisk stuff, a lot of people are saying it worked. It reduced crime. And at the end of the day, I don't care if we have more crime because we didn't implement it. Now, this is obviously my own personal opinion. This doesn't represent like everybody that agrees with me on. This is my personal opinion on it. Yes, it reduced crime, but at some point you have to place personal freedom above your security. There are a lot of trade-offs we make every single day to not be 100% secure. And for some officer to walk up to me, point at me, and frisk me without any cause seems like a massive invasion of my privacy and I will take the added risk for them not having that authority because I do not want them to have that authority. Yeah, so exactly. No, no, no. But, I, but like I said, like these things were wrong, but around the late nineties, when this stuff started coming into administration and making policy, that's what it did. It, it took a complicated problem where, okay, yeah. racism might have something to do with it or that could, you know, the African-American community has been like, there was Tons of historical racism, like, you know, anyone who denies that is an asshole. Um, and that, yes, oh, but that does have effect on those communities, right? Those are communities are, yeah. and so you can deal with that. But if you just focus on the racism, it's like, I, the one example I use, which is because it kind of pointed out really easily, and it's kind of almost benign. Uh, it was in St. Louis. They call it something like uh, going on tour. So they, during redlining, they made a whole bunch of little small townships that were segregated. They got rid of segregation, so the townships were no longer segregated, but they're still individual townships with individual police, individual everything. So someone going from, you might have to go through five of them to go to work. They got a busted taillight. They'll get five $20 tickets instead of one. Now, majority black, yeah. you know, they're, more, they're the ones who are most effective. Racism. Okay, there are no more racist laws. Try to fix that so system. Additionally, a lot of times what happens um, with these claims of racism, like even, even what we've highlighted here, where you'd say um, maybe like stop and frisk could be perceived as racist or, or the instance you just gave of racism. Uh, to say that the initial intention of that was to target the black community is kind of a big jump a lot of times. What happens is you have um, poor 
uh, poor black Americans and minorities in the United States typically, especially uh, poor black communities, live in the inner cities, whereas the poorest white communities will live in super impoverished uh, rural areas. And so you get a very different spread of policing. So when you implement a policy that is going to disproportionately affect poor people in the United States and inner cities, what you're really saying is that policy is going to disproportionately affect black poor individuals in the United States. So you can't say necessarily the intention was originally saying we are going to target black individuals, but many times uh, the outcomes are that you have a, uh, and a lot of the disparities we see are because of the culture, the culture and the disparities in income, which yes, some part of them are due to the historic racism and historic oppression that exists in the United States. Even we think back 60 years from now, that is not that long ago and historic systemic racism or systemic racism was alive and well. And so for us to just think that these disparities, like just because the laws and our institutions aren't racist today, that we need, we can just ignore it. And, and the black community should just jump, bounce right back up to the same level as everybody else is ridiculous. We, we definitely need um, policies that reach out to the poor communities in, in the United States and help to uplift them. And as you uplift the poor communities in the United States, you disproportionately uplift my, minority communities. Yeah, no, that's, so, that, that's exactly it. But like when you focus on just that one variant, you know, it's not just that one variable. And usually that one variable is the smallest one. You're not going to, you're not going to fix the underlying issues. You know, like that township thing in St. Louis, if you merge five townships together and made one, you know, the guy, you know, someone can go to work and back and they're only going to see one cop instead of five different ones, right? Like there, there are solutions. It's like, no, that's, yeah. yes, in, initially that was racist and now it's still affecting black people more than it is affecting anyone else. But you took the racism out. So if you spend your time and money looking for racism, you're not going to fix anything. And, I, yeah. and that's where like my whole thing is let's fix the inequalities and but stop focusing just on one thing. Cause, and, and you can't just discount it 100%, like you said. And I but. Think, yeah, and I think when we talk inequality, um, it's, it's equality of opportunity. And yeah. ensuring that those same opportunities. If you are rich in America, if you start out rich, you have an insane level of more opportunity than any poor person. It's not your skin color. I don't care what your color your skin is. If you are rich, you are going to have way more opportunities than a poor individual. And the education system for a rich individual, it looks entirely different from the time you are a child to the time you become an adult than it does for a poor individual. So even many of the, uh, I guess, solutions or problems that were pointed out on the critical race theory side of things for education, many of the problems in general pointed out, I agree there are problems. Just again, we go back to the fact that the the cause of those problems are much different than what they're stating and they're unwilling to identify the actual cause. And then we start disagreeing strongly about uh, some of the solutions that they give to those problems. Uh, solutions, for example, when you get into uh, having the money follow the individual student uh, at, the, at their younger age where every school is funded equally based on the number of students that they have. And that's kind of, we call it school choice. And it's, it's seen as extremely controversial. But again, I don't have all the answers. I'm not just trying to say I do have answers, but identifying the problem is important. Additionally, the teachers unions in the United States, I think people need to take a realistic look at the outcomes. Teachers unions are paid for not by students. They're paid for by teachers. They are not there to ensure that students have the best outcome. And maybe at one point they did, 
but you can just go on for days about policies and uh, legal proceedings and teachers that are, have been protected that were absolute garbage, just problems that are in the teachers union. So either dismantling when necessary or um, reforming or whatever it needs to be there. There's a lot of problems. Education becomes very difficult, but it is obviously at, at a very core part of the income disparities we see in the United States. And then uh, we can also go in, you can go in and start looking at cultural differences and things like that. But education is absolutely key. Yeah. 100%. Look, um, I don't want to keep you too long because figuring out people have lives. Uh, if you got anything else you want to add, uh, you know, like I said, I'll keep all your links, everything in, in the description. I'll let people know where you can get a hold of you. Go ahead. Um, no, I think people find me uh, at uh, Data Different Conclusions on YouTube, and you can search me out on Twitter at Cass, uh, or Casey A. Peterson, Peterson spelled with E-N. Uh, so stop messaging the Peterson with O-N. He already messaged me and was not too happy about it because he has received an insane amount of people. <laughs> but anyways, I think uh, this movement is going good so far. I do not know how much longer I'm going to be continuing to produce materials. I'm definitely, I made some promises in my initial video that I was going to come back and finish out all the materials on systemic racism, white privilege. So I'm going to see that through to the end. And there's other stuff in the works that we can do. But uh, I have other passions in my life that I would like to pursue in the, in the future. So we will see how long I decide to continue down this path here. I, I'm very happy with the progress we made in short term. And depending on how the next few months go, we will see where my life goes from this point forward. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming on. And thanks a lot for putting out those videos. It's, uh, they're awesome. I'll put them in the links. And thank you, everyone, well, for thanks listening. Thanks for having me on.